Section 15 of The Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Leo Wiener. Chapter 11, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In this chapter is expounded the teaching about the second person of the Trinity, Chapter 2, about our Lord Jesus Christ in particular. Section 1, about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, or about the mystery of the Incarnation. The importance and incomprehensibility of the dogma, a short account of it, the doctrine of the Church about it, and the composition of the doctrine. The redemption was accomplished by God, the second person, the man, Jesus Christ. The man Jesus Christ is both a man and God. From everything which has been expounded heretofore, the concepts of man and God are not only quite different, but almost diametrically opposed. God is independence. Man is dependence. God is the creator. Man is the created. God is good. Man is evil. How is the combination of the two concepts on which all this is based to be understood? There follows an explanation, but this explanation, as always, finds its expression in the form of a controversy with those who do not regard Christ as a god, with those who regard him as all god, all trinity, and with those who regard him as half god. Then with those who did not recognize a human soul in him, with those who said that Jesus Christ was born simple like anybody else, then with those who separated the man and God in Christ, with those who blended God with the man in Christ, with those who separated God and the man, but said that in him there was but one will, and with those who asserted that Christ, according to his human substance, was not the proper Son of God the Father, but a Son by grace and adoption. Amidst all these numberless heresies in regard to the person of the Lord Jesus, the Orthodox Church has since the apostolic days constantly defended and disclosed one and the same teaching, which it has with peculiar force expressed at the Fourth Ecumenical Council in the following words. Following our Divine Father, we all unanimously teach men to profess the one and selfsame Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in divinity and perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, composed of soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in everything like us except sin, born before all ages of the Father according to the divinity, but in the latter days according to the manhood of Mary the Virgin, the Mother of God, for the sake of us and of our salvation, the one and selfsame Christ, the Son, the Lord, the Only Begotten, unblendingly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably recognized in two essences. No distinction of the two essences being removed by the union, but the attribute of each essence being preserved, as concurring in one person and one hypostasis, not cut or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and the only begotten God, the Word, our Lord Jesus Christ, as anciently the prophets and our Lord Jesus Christ himself have taught us, and as the symbol of our fathers has transmitted it to us. From this we see that the whole teaching of the Orthodox Church about the person of our Lord Jesus 
consists of two chief propositions. One, of this that in Jesus Christ there are two essences, the divine and the human. And two, of this that these two essences form in him one hypostasis. It is impossible not to stop here. The words of this definition are a series of contradictions. The concept of essence, as connected with God, excludes the concept of God, since an unlimited spirit cannot have any essence. Two essences form one hypostasis, but hypostasis can have no meaning, since hypostasis has no significance in language and has never been defined. There is no rational sense in the dogma, but this dogma, like all the others, is based on the church. The church is holy and infallible, and ever since it has existed from the very beginning, it has asserted this dogma. It is expressed, the theology says, in holy tradition and in scripture. Let us see whether it is so. Though I have decided to pass cursorily all this second part, nevertheless, at this spot where it is proved that Christ is God, I feel that it is necessary to stop. Since this place, though inserted in the middle, as it were, of the disclosure of further truths, which have been expounded in the beginning, in reality is the foundation of the dogma about the Trinity, which was put forward in the beginning, and if there is a dogma about the Trinity, it results only from recognizing Christ as God. Only later is the third person of the Holy Ghost attached to it. The beginning of the assertion that God is not one, but has persons, is due to the deification of Christ. This is what Article 133 says. Our Lord Jesus has a divine essence and is the Son of God. This article has for a purpose the proof that Jesus Christ has the divine essence, but not in the sense in which any man created by God has it, but differently from all other men. He is the second person of God. The same meaning is ascribed to the words, the Son of God. It is proved that Jesus Christ is not a Son of God in the sense in which other men are, but an especial Son of God the only one, the second person of the Trinity. Here are the proofs from the Old Testament. In Psalm 2, which all the holy apostles and the ancient Jews themselves refer to the Messiah, the Messiah witnesses about himself, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. That is, I have begotten or beget eternally. In Psalm 110, which by the holy apostles and by the ancient Jews is also referred to the Messiah, God himself says to him, From the womb, that is, from my substance, before the morning, that is, before all time, have I begotten thee. The prophet Micah, in prophesying that the Messiah would arise from Bethlehem, added that he had also another origin, an eternal one, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, and this prophecy has also been referred to the Messiah by the whole Jewish church. By the Lord God and even Jehovah, a name which is exclusively applied to the one God. Such, for example, are A, the words of Psalm 45. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, which the apostle and the ancient Jews have referred to the Messiah. B. The words of Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, which Christ himself refers to the Messiah. 
see the prophecy of Malachi. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, which the Savior himself refers to the Messiah. D. The prophecy twice repeated by Jeremiah. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called, The Lord is righteous to us. Not one of these places refers to Jesus Christ. The psalmist is speaking of himself and not of Christ. If it were necessary to understand Christ by I, me, he would have said so. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, means that the goings forth, that is, the origin of each man, are from the beginning of everything. There is nothing in common here with the divinity of Christ. The words of Psalm 45 refer only to God and not to Christ. The prophecies of Malachi refer to any prophet. The words of Jeremiah refer to a certain king, and there is not a shadow of a reference to Christ. Those are all the so-called confirmations of the divinity of Christ from the Old Testament. There follow confirmations from the New Testament. Here is the passage from the conversation with Nicodemus, which is adduced in proof of the divinity of Christ. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here, A, the Savior in the first words, clearly ascribes to himself omnipresence, a property which does not belong to one of the created beings. B, then he calls himself the only begotten Son of God, no doubt in the proper sense, that is, as being born from the essence of God, having a divine essence. For to this the Son belongs omnipresence, a divine attribute. C. Finally, he bears witness that without faith in him as the only begotten Son of God who is omnipresent, no salvation is possible for men. To Nicodemus's question as to how a man can be reborn in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus replies that no one can enter heaven and come to God except he who knows God already, who already ascends heaven. No matter how these words may be understood, they cannot be interpreted in such a way as that Jesus is speaking about himself, since he is apparently speaking about all men and directly says that what he is speaking about is the Son of Man. Independently of the fact that from the meaning of the whole conversation with Nicodemus, which begins with Jesus' saying that no one shall see the kingdom of heaven if he is not born from above, it is evident that Jesus does not refer it to himself but to all men. Independently of this obvious meaning, everything which is said is said now of the Son of Man and now of the Only Begotten, or more correctly, of the One Begotten Son, but it does not say that this Son of God is exclusively Christ. Above all, these words cannot have the meaning which the Church ascribes to them, because the word Son of Man has the definite meaning of the Son of Man, that is, of men, 
and the appellation of the Son of God is precisely what Christ teaches the men to call themselves. And so Christ, if he had intended to say that he stood in an exclusive relation to God, would have been compelled to choose another expression in order to give it that meaning. I cannot permit myself to believe that Jesus should not have been able or willing to express such an important dogma. If then he called himself a son of God and called other people also sons of God, he wanted to say that, so that the text expresses precisely the opposite of what the author wants to prove. I am not going to quote here evidences from the Gospels which directly deny the divinity of Christ, for I will quote them in their proper place. But I will analyze those which are quoted here in what purports to be a confirmation of the divinity of Christ. Another passage is the parable about the vineyard, which a certain man planted and set a hedge about it, and let out to husbandmen. Understanding by it the heavenly father who had planted his church among the Jewish nation and had turned it over to the leaders of the nation, the Savior said that at first the master of the vineyard at a certain time sent his servants one after another to the husbandmen in order to receive of the fruit of the vineyard. But when the husbandmen beat one of the messengers and sent him away shamefully handled and even killed others, the master decided to send his son to them. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. In this parable, the husbandmen, according to the interpretation of the church, mean the Jews. The fruits are the good deeds, the master means God. Then why should the son mean the son only? According to the spirit of the parable, the son too must have and does have a transferred meaning. The whole parable proves that by the son something is to be understood, only not the son. When the Savior cured him that was diseased, and the Jews sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day, he, as though in justification, replied to them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. This answer, in which the Lord Jesus ascribes to himself an equality with God, the Father, in right and power. Jesus told all to pray to God the Father, and to call and regard God as a Father. And so this place can only prove the opposite, namely that Jesus regarded himself as just such a man as everybody else and defined his relation to God just like the relation of all other men to God. His words, I am working as my father worketh, apparently have the same meaning as the words, be as perfect as your father. Here he refers his words to others, but when he says, I am working as my father worketh, and refers these words to himself, he speaks of himself as man and not as God. The Jews understood it in the same way. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. These words, no matter how one may read them, have no other meaning but that St. John, wishing to clear up the real meaning of Christ's sonhood to God, represents an example of a false comprehension of Christ's words. These words denote only that the Jews, rebuking Christ, fell into the same error into which the church is falling now when it praises him. These words can have no other meaning. 
At that time, Jesus did not remark to the Jews that they comprehended him wrongly, but continued, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. These words are said in reply to the reproaches that he and his disciples are breaking the Sabbath. He says that God and he himself do not stop working or providing, so why should man stop? For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. What is said about the healing on the Sabbath is also said here, namely, that a man may cure on the Sabbath, and may decide for himself what is to be done, so long as he lives in a godly manner, and tries to be as perfect as the Father, and that man is the Son of God, and ought to be honored like God. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. This means only what Jesus has been teaching all the time, that the true life is the knowledge of the true God, and that each man has this life in himself. All these passages, without speaking of their significance, have one undeniable meaning, namely, that Jesus Christ acknowledges himself to be precisely such a son of God and of man as all other men, and not only does not equal himself to God as the Jews slanderously say he did, but constantly opposes himself to God. The words, my beloved son, even if they are spoken from heaven, mean only that Christ is a son of God like any other man, but beloved of God. To the evidence of the Old Testament writings, search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The scriptures speak of the prophet, of his teaching, but there is not even a hint as to his divinity. Another similar incident presented itself soon, when the Savior once came into a temple at Jerusalem, and the Jews surrounding him kept asking persistently, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. He, replying to them, said, among other things, I and my father are one. This is a conscious lie. He did not reply, among other things, I and my father are one, but spoke those words for the following reason. He did not say it, among other things, but spoke as follows. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not. Because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and none is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He said distinctly that his sheep, that is, those who listen to him, cannot be taken from him, because he leads them by the will of God, and what he teaches them is that in which is the will of God. Only that do the words, I and my Father are one, mean, and in confirmation of the statement that these words mean nothing else, and in order to caution people not to give a false interpretation to these words, the evangelist immediately adds the false, coarse conception of the Jews, showing in this manner how the words were not to be understood. 
This passage, which clearly denies the divinity of Christ, is rendered by the evangelist as follows. The word so irritated those who were asking him that they took up stones to stone him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. About this passage, the theology says, However, even at that particular time, the Savior not only failed to remark to the Jews that he did not at all call himself God, as they thought, but on the contrary proceeded to prove that idea by calling himself directly the Son of God. End of section 15